All right. Well, I want to add uh, my voice to the others that have been saying Happy Mother's Day today. It truly is a, a blessing for us to be gathered together on Mother's Day. Um, whether you're a mother or somebody who had one, it's a day that we recognize this, uh, how vital of a role uh, moms actually play in people's lives. And so I am truly, truly thankful for that, uh, which is why I have to apologize before I can even get into the message today. Um, I made this commitment to myself uh, to go through the New Testament in five years by doing one chapter a week, and I said I was only going to take off the Sundays that were Easter and Christmas. All other Sundays, we would just go straight through, and really, it's what I've done every year anyway. I haven't often taught topical messages on specific days other than Christmas and Easter, uh, which seemed like a good idea most of the time until this Sunday. Um, it's just such an awkward passage um, <laughs> to have on Mother's Day. Um, however, when I realized that was the case, I thought about changing it and um, was told that the Sunday school teachers were already prepared for it and don't make their life worse by having them have to prepare for something completely different. So I'm just gonna go forward in 1 Corinthians chapter five uh, just with that blanket apology. If you haven't read it yet, you'll understand here shortly. Um, <laughs> But as we're going through 1 Corinthians, we're seeing, again, just these two pieces of this book. We're on the first half right now. We're looking at the bad reports that have been received by the Apostle Paul about the church there in Corinth. Uh, we've seen that the, the number one bad report that is dealt with is this idea of division. Uh, we'll see today in chapter 5 another bad report uh, dealing with some immorality in the church. Uh, and then we'll get some bad reports about uh, divisions through lawsuits and some uh, difficulties beyond that. But the second half of the book, Paul's just going to be answering some very practical theological questions for the church. So uh, as we approach the passage this week, uh, the overall idea, if you're looking for a thesis statement for the, for the chapter, it's this, is that sin in the church should be dealt with by removing the sin or the sinner, whichever leaves first. So that's the hope uh, that we can remove sin from the church in that way. Uh, and just to make clear when I'm talking about the awkwardness, let me just read verse 1 to you. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And so the immorality being described here awkwardly enough on Mother's Day, is that somebody is having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. Of course, I did not plan that. I promise you that was not my goal. I'll try to make it as awkward as possible on Father's Day as well, just to keep things nice and even for everybody. Um, but the, but the, the, the reality is that's the report. It says there in verse 1, it's actually reported among you. And I love the way Paul used the word actually there as if he's shocked to hear this. Like, like this is an actual thing that's happening in your church. Uh, he even goes a step further and he says it's, uh, this is something even unbelievers look at as a bad deal, right? Even they see this as a bad thing that shouldn't happen. Uh, but that's the description of the situation that he's, he's bringing out there. The word he uses for immorality is a very uh, powerful word. Uh, it's intended to give the idea of any brand of sexual immorality. So it's making us clear here what type of inappropriate relationship he's having with his uh, stepmother. 
Um, uh, it's so specific that you can find an actual law in the Old Testament that says, hey, you shouldn't have these types of relationships with your stepmother. It's just not allowed. It's so not allowed. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 11, uh, it says the penalty for this type of relationship is death. The death penalty. Well, now that brings us into an interesting area of conversation. In the New Testament church, why don't we put more people to death? <laughs> we, were at, we were in Numbers chapter 25 on Wednesday, and, and another situation with the sexual immorality happened, and this guy by the name of Phineas uh, finds this man and woman who are involved in this sinful relationship, and it says he runs his spear through them. It almost sounds like he, you know, turns them into a shish kebab or something like that. He literally runs his spear through them. And our intern was teaching on that particular Sunday or on that particular Wednesday night. And he said, look, I'm new to this internship, but I can't wait till we get to this part of the training. This is some exciting stuff, right? Um, so to answer your question, why do we not put people to death for sin in the New Testament? Uh, the answer is because Jesus already died for our sin. Uh, there is a sacrifice for our sin in Jesus Christ. We don't need to put people to death for sin anymore because Jesus was that sacrifice to put them to death. That's how we cleanse sin from the church is through the death of Jesus Christ. So uh, you will actually have that question come up from time to time when you tell people you believe the Bible and they'll start quoting Old Testament stuff like that. Oh yeah, I haven't seen you put anybody to death for sexual sin yet. And I have to get past my original sarcastic answer, which is usually like, yeah, but you're next, just so you know. <laughs> I have to put that aside, and I have to get to my real answer, which is, that's because Jesus took that death for you. Now, that's the reality of what's happening here. Um, but uh, I, I think we should take uh, that, knowing what the situation is, set it aside now. We've heard that. Uh, we're going to move past what the actual circumstance is and look now at Paul's response, which has a more universal application to any sin in the church. And I'm going to try as best as I can to not remind us what the specific sin is. Uh, you guys can just know that it's there, but let's look at this in a more universal sense. Well, Paul's going to give his overview in how he would like the church to respond to sin in their midst here in verse 2. He says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul recognizes that the problem in Corinth was less about the individual sin and more about the arrogance of the people in the church. Uh, it seemed as if they are boasting or even proud. In fact, he's going to use more language like that later in this uh, chapter. Uh, that they're, they're kind of proud of this idea that they're allowing such a sinful person in their church. It seems in the moment like they're just like so accepting and so loving. Look, we're so loving as a church. We've got all types of sin in our church. Crazy types of sin. Now that's where we can start to relate to the Apostle Paul's circumstances here in the church in Corinth. Now, I believe this is a particular type of arrogance that has infected the church today, where we almost celebrate how gracious we are by being so forgiving of sin that we never hold the sinner to account for their sin. Now, this is actually an unfortunately common mistake 
Now, Paul will address the idea of how we treat these circumstances, whether it's a believer or a professed believer or an unbeliever, because there is a stark difference there that needs to be addressed. But for those who are claiming to be believers in Jesus Christ, there is an expectation that the church would handle that sin uh, for the hope of discipleship, for the hope of, of bringing people to being in right relationship with God. In fact, he says, you should have been not arrogant, but instead you should have mourned their sin. I wonder when the last time we mourned sin was. When we really thought about the sin that is in our lives or in the lives of people in our church where it actually caused us to mourn over the sin. I don't like to be sad. I enjoy being happy. People wouldn't know it because I don't actually physically have the ability to smile. But I'm happy almost all the time. I don't enjoy mourning and suffering and, and, and weeping over these things. But it's something I think that we have to consider the reality of sin and how important it is that we deal with it. Paul handles this a couple of times in this book, actually. We saw it once before, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, in just kind of a side note in chapter 3, uh, but he's dealing with uh, this uh, idea as somebody being saved as if through fire. And then in verse 16 he says, Do you not know that you, and in this case the you is the church at Corinth, are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. One of the reasons we need to mourn sin is because in the church, this is a holy place where the Spirit of God dwells. And we certainly don't want the Spirit of God to be subjected to our sinfulness. We don't want to misrepresent God to the world by celebrating people's sin. There's a real reason there why we need to mourn sin. Another reason that he's going to give us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking about communion and taking communion in an appropriate fashion, in verse 30 he says this, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. One of the reasons we mourn sin is it has a physical impact on us. Sinfulness can lead to sickness and can even lead to death. There's a real danger there. That's why we mourn sin. We mourn what it does to the body of Christ, but we also mourn what it can do to the individual believer. We recognize the destructive nature of sin. Now, when I say sin leads to sickness or death, we kind of look at those things and we think, oh yeah, kind of generically. But if I were to say to you that sin can be destructive in somebody's life, you would get that. When you recognize the destruction of sin in people's lives, it should cause you to mourn for them. To mourn what's actually happening in their life and in their heart and the long-term consequences that they can't even see in that moment. Or even for ourselves individually, the long-term consequences that we can't see that are a result of our own sinfulness. Now, we need to be mourning those things. It's not just like Paul is the only one who ever came up with this. James talks about it as well in James chapter 5. He basically is talking about praying for sickness. And in the same breath, he says, when you're praying for your sickness, confess your sins. 
It's a reminder to us in James chapter 5 uh, that our sin could lead to our sickness and our confession of sin could lead to our healing. Not that every sickness is a result of my sin personally, but theologically, every sickness is the result of sin. In that there was no sin and there was no sickness until Adam sinned and then entered sickness and death. But there's that that real connection there between sin and sickness. That's why we mourn these things. The other question I would ask then is how do we mourn these things? I'm going to turn to the Old Testament because in the Old Testament they were so good at mourning the sin amongst them people. I do worry sometimes in the Old Testament uh, that that it was just for show sometimes, that they're just kind of going through the practice of, of mourning. They're just making it look like a show. Uh, but you can recognize that they are, moan, are mourning because of the actual actions. Uh, again, I was telling you about Phineas in Numbers chapter 25. Uh, as this was brought to the people, this sin was brought to the people. Moses is explaining it to the people. In chapter 25, it says they began to weep. Now, one of them jumped up with a spear and did something about it, right? But they began to weep. They were mourning this idea of sin. Uh, You see it as well in the book of Ezra in chapter 10 when the people were reminded of their sin. They responded by fasting. Fasting is a, a wonderful way to mourn. So they were going through a process. There was some process where they were first looking at the sin and the results of the sin. And it was heartbreaking to them. There was a mourning of the sin that was happening there. So once you've mourned then, it's time to take action. And the action actually is somewhat similar to what Phineas did. Phineas removed the sin from the camp, right? By taking out the lives of the people here. Well, for us today, there is a removal of sin from our midst that happens in two ways. The first way is repentance. If you can convince the person who's in sin that they have sinned and they need to repent and they can repent from that sin, then the wickedness is gone and there's no need to go any further. But if you can't convince them to give up their sin, then you actually have to physically remove them from the church. There's an action there. All of this, by the way, points back to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. I know we just went through the book of Matthew a couple months back, but uh, maybe it was a year ago, but uh, now I think about it two years ago. Matthew chapter 18, though, uh, Jesus does this amazing job of expressing in full detail how to handle sin within the people of God, how to handle sin within the church. And so in Matthew 18, he describes this process uh, of discipline and prayer, where essentially once a sin becomes known, you go to the person who's in sin and you show them their fault in private. So that nobody else knows about their sin except for you and them. Nobody knows about your conversation. It gives them an opportunity to quietly repent of their sin. So you go to them, giving them the opportunity to to save face and in humility respond to the circumstances. And so you bring that sin to them and there is a repentance that can happen there. In that moment, they can walk away from their sin and everything's fine. Life just goes back to normal. Nobody needs to know all the details. But if they refuse to repent... Uh, you up the pressure just a little bit. And you bring with you now a couple of witnesses of their sin. 
A couple of people have come alongside you and intervene in this. So now you're upping the pressure on them just a little bit that they would give up their sin in hopes again that they will repent. But if they don't repent, then it says to tell it to the church. And so now everybody knows about their sin. Again, what is the goal of this? The goal of it is that they would repent of their sin. But if they don't repent of their sin, then ultimately he says, treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile. You need to remove them from the church. So Paul uh, is talking about this process that Jesus brought to us. But he's assuming here, or at least we can assume from his response, that the particular situation there in Corinth was already brought to the church and the person still isn't repentant. That's the assumption that we're making there based on the process that Jesus gave us. That he's just refusing to repent of what is known and obvious sin. And so because of that, Paul says the best thing that we can do is remove that person from our midst. And it actually is, whether we're willing to accept it or not, it's actually the best thing not just for the church, but for the unrepentant sinful person. Let's hear how that works out in verses 3 through 5. Paul says, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you assemble and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." So here's the plan from the Apostle Paul, and here's how he envisions this working. He basically says, look, I'm with you in spirit in this sense. I think you guys need to come together. And it says the next time you assemble, and so I'm assuming he's just saying, on the next Sunday service, I need you guys to go ahead in the name, in verse 4, of Jesus, and the power of Jesus, which again, this was something that was given to us by Jesus, You need to deliver such a one to Satan. Now, if you stop right there, this feels horrible. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? That just sounds, well, miserable, right? Well, A, it's intended to be miserable. It's the same reason we punish our children, right? Right? We put them through a little misery now to train them for righteousness later. A parent that refuses to discipline their children is a parent that doesn't really love their children. They they don't really care about the long-term aspects for their children. They're more worried about the moment of happiness than they are worried about the rest of their life. Even in the book of Hebrews, it says, that God disciplines those he loves. And sometimes I like to ask myself this question. What's the evidence that God loves me? Where's the discipline? Well, when you can start to recognize the work of God in your heart to change your actions, it's a recognition that God does in fact love you. He's disciplining you because of your sin because he loves you. And that's what the ultimate goal here is. The goal is not the destruction of their flesh. It's in verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a very uh, tricky thing here because Paul doesn't spend a lot of time 
discussing this. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time going detail by detail exactly how that works, where somebody gets handed over for the destruction of their flesh, but ultimately it'll lead to the salvation of their soul. What I think is important here to make a distinction, what he doesn't say is when you hand them over, they instantly lose their salvation. That's not what's happening here. You don't have the authority over their salvation. You're not saved by works, but it's saying to the one who may be saved that the church recognizes that they're living as an unsaved person, so we're now going to treat you as an unsaved person. And there is a destruction that will come to their flesh that goes back to the idea uh, that there might be sickness that follows this. The greatest example I see of this is the parable of the prodigal son. If you think about how that story worked, the prodigal son left the grace of his father and went out into the world. And as he was out in the world, apart from uh, the provision of his father, it was just this continual downward spiral of things getting worse and worse and worse uh, until you get to this point where this you know, Jewish boy is working in a pigsty. So the picture is about as far down as you could think. And he finally says to himself, I'd rather be a slave at my dad's house than be where I am now. The destruction of his flesh led him to restore his relationship with his father. Well, in the same sense, as we allow people to be left out of the grace of the church for a time, it allows Satan to work on them, the destruction of their flesh, to the point where it could cause them to say, Man, maybe I should just repent of this thing so I can just be back in the grace of God and the grace of church. Now, let me explain one of the difficulties we have with this today in the world. That is that churches don't work together on these things very well. And I can tell you this uh, from some personal experiences. We haven't had to do this a lot in our church, but we have had to do it. Sometimes we've done it well, sometimes we've done it not well. We've not always done it great, we just continue to keep working on it. We actually were able to discuss it this last uh, month at one of our elders' meetings. It was just the next thing on our topic list. We're just working our way through the job description, and that was the, one of the responsibilities of elders. And we were able to talk about this and talk about some of the ways we've done well in the past and some of the ways we've not done well in the past. Uh, but one of the problems I've run into is we have taken people all the way to the point where we're asking them and telling them that because of your sin, we can't allow you to be a part of our church anymore. And for us, it's really uh, not overly complicated. Essentially, what we're saying to them is, we're treating you as an unbeliever so you can't take communion with us anymore. Well, typically what will happen is along that way, somebody will say, I don't have to put up with this. There's lots of churches in Cheyenne. So they'll just go to another church. And so me, being the uh, idealist, I idealistic pastor that I am, just assuming everybody agrees with the way we do things, when I find out they're going to another church, I just call the pastor of that church and say, well, just so you know. Uh, they are under discipline in our church because of sinfulness in their life. And here's what I've heard in response. Uh, new church, new start. We're just going to give them a fresh start. Well, there's no power in that discipline. We rob the church of that. We're stealing the power of the church in that moment when we refuse to join in in that process of discipline. The other place it's been hard is people don't want to do the work of it. 
Somebody will say, so-and-so is in sin, and I think you should do something about it, Pastor Sean. And I'll say, great, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you how Matthew 18 works. Because you know about the sin, you should go to them one-on-one, invest in them personally, with the hope of seeing them restored. Not just because you want to cause problems for them, but with the hope of being restored. Oh, well, I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want them to not like me anymore. Well, you just immediately diffuse the process. You've taken the power out of the process because you're unwilling to love somebody enough to help them get past sin that is destructive in their life. I'll tell you the place that I've most recommended this in our church, it's in marriage problems. And I have had zero people take me up on this. (laughs) But when I'm doing marriage counseling and it seems like one of the spouses is unwilling to repent of some sinfulness, I suggest let's work our way through Matthew 18. And what I've found is oftentimes the spouse would much rather end the relationship than biblically deal with the problem. And in doing so, We steal the power of what God intends to do. And we leave that person in their sin. And we defile the church when we should have been mourning instead. So Paul's idea is right. It's just hard for us to wrap our minds around. Because we can't grasp the pain that that might put somebody through. But sometimes a little pain for a moment is ultimately good as it restores them in right relationship to God and it works on their sanctification. So Paul's going to address this now. He has two more things that he wants to say about this. One is going to be an illustration and one is a clarification. So let's look first at his illustration here in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, this illustration doesn't hit as hard home to us as it would to Jewish believers because they were in the regular practice of celebrating the Passover. And so Exodus chapter 12, describing the Passover, uh, gives these details about going through the house and removing all the, the leaven, the yeast, if, that's, if you want to put it in a more American term, from the house as this symbolic picture of the removal of sin. And then that picture of leaven will be used throughout the scripture uh, to illustrate not always sin, but the general concept of something that spreads. And so sometimes you see it as sin. Uh, You also, in one case, it's used as a picture of the kingdom of God, which obviously is not sin. But again, that little bit can then spread throughout the world. That's what the kingdom does as well. Uh, But the same idea is here. Uh, When you begin to allow these little pockets of sin within your church it begins to spread throughout the church. And once this thing is acceptable, then maybe my thing is acceptable. And you see how it just kind of spreads throughout the church. And as it says here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Of course, if you're a baker, you understand how this works. You put a little bit of leaven in the bread and this little dough ball 
grows and grows and grows until it outgrows the pan, right? And it spreads throughout the whole lump of dough. A little bit of sin can end up spreading throughout. So that's his, his picture to kind of clarify what he's trying to prevent is the spread of sin within the church. An important thing that he feels like needs to be addressed, particularly in that particular church, because it was really, actually, honestly, sincerely happening. But I would say it's important for the church universally that we recognize that. So here's my part in this that I, I want to say, because Paul's not saying it, even though Jesus did over and over again, Paul's not saying it here. The first place this happens, the first place that we remove sin is in our own life. That we would mourn first our own sin and the damage that it can do to us and that it can do within the church. That we would personally take responsibility for that. That we would personally examine ourselves and say, man, is there sin in my life that I need to get rid of? I need to respond to it personally for me. Uh, number one, I do that because it's good for the church. Number two, I do that because I don't want to go through all this removal stuff. Well, that just sounds miserable, right? But we first can examine ourselves. Of course, that goes back to the teaching of Jesus when he talks about judging other people. He says, first remove the log from your own eye, then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That we would be constantly examining ourselves to make sure we're walking in sanctification. That we're living like believers. Like we actually believe the things that we read and that we teach. That's the first level of defense against sin in the church. But when we don't handle it, somebody else might need to. The church has to get involved. But it's ultimately for the good of the church and the individual. That's one of the places where churches have got sideways. They oftentimes see how it can be beneficial to them because, frankly, it's just difficult having sinful people around us all the time. So we'll just get them out of our church. But we forget the second half of that is we're only doing it for the purpose that they would be restored and repentant. The ultimate goal is to bring them back into comfortable fellowship in the church. To remove that, that communal peer pressure that comes from being recognized as somebody who's chosen sin over the grace of God. We want to restore that. And so we have to deal with these things so that they don't spread throughout our church. The next thing that Paul wants to clarify, though, is who he's talking about when he's talking about sinful people. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. 
Again, pretty pointed instructions here from the Apostle Paul, but he's making a clarification for us. He's drawing a line. He says, when I said, and apparently he's written a letter to them once before that was not recorded for us in history, which uh, bothers some people, uh, but uh, it doesn't bother me. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul wrote hundreds of letters in his lifetime, but not all of those letters were inspired by and kept by God so that we could have them today for the instruction of the church. Sometimes he was just writing to his friends a grocery list, and we don't need that, right? Sometimes he was writing letters to the church of very practical wisdom, but they weren't things that God had inspired him to write necessarily, or that God wanted to maintain or preserve for the church. But this letter has been preserved for the church, but he had previously written to them in a letter not to associate with immoral people. And this is where... The confusion came in, and I think still comes in today, right? We're very concerned with how immoral people in the world are, and seemingly almost unconcerned about how immoral people within the church are. That's completely backwards. It's completely backwards. First and foremost, we should be getting our house in order, right? First and foremost, we should be examining ourselves for this sin. So that's when he says, when I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people, I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world, covetous, swindlers, idolaters. You'd have to get out of the world to do that. Uh, You would have to completely abandon planet Earth if you weren't going to associate with any unbeliever who acted immorally. In fact, if you find an unbeliever who acts righteous, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? We, we totally expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. And he doesn't tell us here that we, shouldn't, that we should completely abandon unbelievers in this world. It's not that he doesn't want us to associate with them. We remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. What was the criticism of Jesus? Well, he hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. We sing a whole song about it. Jesus, friend of sinners, Right? Shouldn't that be for us an example? Paul's going to talk in more detail about this uh, in 2 Corinthians. But the idea is, it's one thing to have some level of interaction with unbelievers in the world. You just don't yoke yourself to them. You don't tie yourselves to them. Uh, This would be another encouragement for those in the church. We should all be friendly with unbelievers. All of us should be. But our best friends should always be believers. Because an unbeliever can never truly understand your life or your circumstances. But we should always be friendly with with unbelievers. We always should. The world has or the church has misunderstood this, I think, forever. Where we get to this idea, if we could just separate ourselves from the world, everything will be better. No. Remove the worldliness from yourselves. But don't separate yourselves from the world. Those are two different things. Completely different things. Don't be shocked when the world lives like unbelievers. Because that's what they are. Instead, be shocked when believers act like unbelievers. 
That's the real problem that Paul wanted to address here. The way I handle that, by the way, uh, I have no problem speaking publicly about what is sinful and what is not sinful. But I don't speak publicly about anybody's sin who's not a believer. That, to me, is the dividing line. If somebody says what is sin and what is not sin, I will say I identify the sin with Scripture. Scripture identifies to me what is sinful and what is not sinful. And so this action, I believe, is sinful, or this action, I believe, is not sinful because that's what the Scripture says. But I'm not going to go down chasing, go chasing down the sinners of this world doing that. Now you can see how that might be confusing to some. Because isn't it our job to help sinful people see that they're in sin so that they can receive the gospel? Yes. But I do that just simply by letting the truth be known. I don't feel like it's my job, particularly because the way we've messed this up as Christians is we try to clean them up before we save them. If we could just get them to live like us, then it'd be so much easier for them to accept the gospel. That's backwards. First, they have to accept that this is true. Then it will change their lives. We're going about it backwards. We're trying to work the equation the wrong way. It seems to me oftentimes as if Christians would rather somebody lived righteously or at least pretended to live righteously than whether or not they were actually saved. If I could just get them to stop doing this sinful thing, I would be more comfortable with them. If they want to worship some other God, that's fine. But just around me, could you try not to be so sinny? <laughs> and that's why they're all cynical, right? These things just come out sometimes. Just came up with that right now. Sorry. Just trying to lighten the mood a little bit there. No, what Paul's concerned about is that we first examine the believers in the church. That's where we do the judging. It's not the unbelievers he's concerned about. Actually, in verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, which in that particular culture, that would have been a big deal. Uh, when you eat with somebody, you're, you're putting this deepness to a relationship in their culture there. You can still talk to people in the Middle East today that there's a deepness to the culture there. And he's saying, if you're with this, a believer, if there's a brother in Christ, another believer who's refusing to repent of their sin, you have to eventually cut them off to the point where you don't even eat with them. And then verse 12 and 13 will actually spill over into chapter 6, but he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? That's where our responsibility is. Our judgment happens within the church. We trust God to bring judgment to those outside the church. And then in verse 13, he sums it up nicely when he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so, to summarize, remove the sin or remove the sinner. If they refuse to repent, at some point you have to respond. Now, as a church, how do I want you to respond to this personally? The first thing I want you to respond is to examine your own life and ask yourself, 
Am I living in such a sinful matter that it brings defilement to the church and threatens to spread throughout the church? If so, I need to repent of my sin. Do I know of people that are living openly in sin that I haven't loved enough believers who are living openly in sin that I haven't loved them enough to mourn their sin and to at least have the conversation with them to help them understand the damage that their sin can do to the body of Christ or even to themselves. And then lastly, I would say this is someday you're going to hear that Calvary Chapel cast somebody out of their church and you're going to have this moment of discomfort. I know because the first time I heard about this, I was a young believer. I was in a college uh, home fellowship and we're with all these couples and uh, one of the guys talks about this idea of removing somebody who's in sin from the church. And I stopped it. I'm like, please. I know Jesus. He is a loving, loving man. And he would never remove anybody from the church. And he challenged me immediately. His name's Rob, by the way. He's a pastor now in Missouri. Uh, he challenged me right away with the scripture, brought the scripture to me. And he said, you might know Jesus, but you don't know this Jesus. <laughs> oh. I had to make a decision. I had to choose. Was I going to conform the image of Jesus to what I wanted him to be? Or was I going to conform my understanding to the truth of who Jesus is? I had to make the change. So someday you're going to hear that the church has disqualified somebody from the church. That we've asked them to leave because of sin in their life. What I'm asking you to do would then be to trust the judgment of the leadership of this church. Uh, we have gone out of our way over the years to be as biblical as we know how. And we're asking you to give us the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean you can't ask us questions, but understand the difficult situation that we'll find ourselves in. The person who's been asked to leave has all the freedom in the world to share the details of their story however they want to share them. Just the parts that make them look good, just the parts that make us look bad. But our response is always going to be the same. We believe they were clearly involved in this sin. We took them through this process, and that's the outcome. And we're not going to haggle over the details with everybody. That's not our job. We don't need to retry the case over and over and over again in the court of public opinion. At some point, you have to trust that the leadership of the church will act wisely. And one other way that this can be applied, which might be painful for some. The possibility exists that some of you were in the process of discipline in your church when you left, to come to, when you left your church to come to our church. And we just don't know about it. And my suggestion is repent be restored in relationship with that church. Whether you attend there or not, to me, is not relevant. That's up to you. If you want to go back there, go back there. If you want to stay here, stay here. You're free to come to any church you want, right? But repent. Turn away from your sin for the protection of the body of Christ, for the protection of you, for the salvation of our souls. Amen? I am so sorry, mothers. <laughs>
but you can use this with your children someday. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and the work that it does in our lives. And Lord, I would pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, first direct himself at me, that you would help me see where there's sin in my life, and where changes need to be made, where repentance needs to come. Lord, I pray that you would do the same for all of us here in church, that each one who is called by your name, who's indwelled with your Holy Spirit, would see the sin that's defiling them, that they can now begin to turn away from that sin and live in the sanctification that was given to them by, your, by Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would take it serious, that we would mourn sin and what it does to us. Father, I pray as well that you would help us to see more clearly just the very simple way forward of repentance, of, of having a godly sorrow that would cause us to turn away from our sin. Father, I do pray for our moms. Oh, they've got a tough, tough job. Lord, I pray that they would know how best to raise children if they're young, how to be mothers of children who grow up to be adults, how to interact with younger mothers and invest in them and build them up. And Lord, I pray for those who so desperately want to be mothers but have not been able to. Lord, I pray that you'd give them a measure of peace today. Father, I pray for children that we would learn to honor our father and mother. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.